and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about common interests, share some knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Amina and I'm joined by Ghalia, Laura and Rueda to talk about whether we adapt to infrastructure or the infrastructure adapt to us with the focus on the water industry. So to start off with, Ghalia, why do you care about how the water industry adapts to us? Well, I work in the water and wastewater industry, which is actually, to be honest, something I kind of accidentally fell into. Um, I didn't really like anything else in my course at university. And um, but I kind of enjoyed the water part just because it it felt a bit more interdisciplinary. Um, But I'm really lucky in that sense because I kind of found my passion and I'm really, really happy that I've kind of made a career out of this. And so the reason why I'm interested in understanding infrastructure and our relationship with it is because I see the future and our future challenges. Um, and I don't think we can address those challenges without kind of getting everyone on board and understanding their relationship with the infrastructure around them. So I think I've kind of given my position away already in this uh, in this podcast, but, uh, but <laughs> that's why I'm quite keen in this, in, this, in this area. It gives you the chance to look at the bigger picture, I guess. Yeah. And I, I suppose not many industries allow you to do that. Rueda, why do you care about the water industry? Uh, well, it does affect our day-to-day life and the quality of drinking water would be changing from a place uh, to another. So uh, one example from my personal life in the UK, so uh, the water in Manchester uh, area was different to the new area I moved to, so it's different from the water in Dundee. And uh, that's a question to Galia, why the water tastes differently in these new, like in the same country but in different areas. Um, Ruey, did you want to give our trade secrets away? I don't think you can do that. No, I'm joking. Um, it's um, it's really just depends on the source of water. So I'm not sure what the source of water is like in Dundee, but it might be from the highlands or from springs. And um, it really depends on the quality, but it also depends on what you like to taste. So someone else might have the opposite feelings towards water. So it really depends on where we get our water from. So it depends on your palate, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe some people like metallic taste. I'm not sure. <laughs> I can vouch for that. I have some relatives from down south who prefer the water from down south. And I cannot fathom, like, I just cannot palate that at all. It's like, for me, it's like, it has to be Manchester. It cannot be down south. It's just like drinking chlorine <laughs> to me. I feel like there are other things than that, not just not just the water down south. <laughs> Laura, why do you care? Yeah, as Rueda's pointed out, the water does taste different in different parts of the country. And I've moved around the UK a fair amount in my career for various reasons. Um, but where I live now, uh, we used to get our drinking water from a local lake, Ennerdale Water. And then someone discovered some rare mussels in it that we were not meant to disturb. So we had to stop extracting water from that lake. So the water company it currently tops our water supply up with borehole water, which a lot of people say makes the water taste unpleasant. I haven't noticed personally. Um, and there's a plan for a couple of years down the line to have pipe work coming in all the way from Thirlmere, which is quite a long way away, coming all the way around the mountains to get water to us because we can't abstract water from Ennerdale. And that, that's a huge engineering challenge. It's also quite interesting to see the effect it has on the local community, as well as the massive disruption just getting pipe work here from a reservoir that's quite a long way away. Just with the discovery of a few mussels. So that's quite interesting that how everything around that water supply now has to change because of what's been discovered. That also highlights how the water industry is regulated as well, isn't it? How they've got rules and regulations and how they must adapt to the environment they're in. Okay, so we've got some idea of why water infrastructure is important. Looking at 
during the pandemic and seeing how our water uses has changed, especially because we have to wash our hands all the time now, or perhaps more so than than used to. There's still 785 million people out there who cannot access clean water. So this is clearly not an option for everyone. Um, clean water to sort of drink and and bathe yourselves with and 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 wash yourselves. It's it's not a luxury that everybody has. In the UK and abroad, different quality of water reaches our homes. In the UK, we can drink water from the taps, which is directly from the treatment works. Grey water is using water from the likes of showering and reusing it within the building for areas that don't require clean water, such as toilets, etc. Capturing rainwater is also a possibility and can be used to water gardens. So there are different technologies out there, but we are lagging in a bit of implementation over that. So how has your home user changed during the pandemic? Laura? I suspect that our water use in some ways, it probably went up initially because um, I showered at work a lot. I often wasn't home a lot anyway because I was traveling a fair bit for work. Um, Whereas now I have to shower at home because I don't have anywhere else to go. But I've also started showering less. (laughs) (laughs) I think for what I see on social media, it's quite true of a lot of people because you're not going out as much. You must possibly not getting as much exercise. Um, I'm, I'm worried this is turning into like a, an insight into our hygiene habits, actually. I feel like this is the, the direction of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we should change topics slightly. Yeah. <laughs> we also make more cups of tea following on from our last episode. <laughs> so all, all the tea that we would normally drink in the office, we now drink at home. So I suspect our water use overall has probably gone up. But we did also install a water butt for the garden. So we're now not watering the garden with drinking water unless the water butt runs dry, which it hasn't done yet. My youngest figured out a way to empty the water butt. So we have two in the house and, and it was really good before. But now she just sort of crawls out and just turns the tap on and just sits there and plays with it. So you know, I try. <laughs> Um, how about you, Galia? I would say that my water habit has definitely changed. Usually I'd wake up and have a shower and then go off to work. Now I have a shower, I don't know, maybe like 11 a.m. or, you know, just before lunch or something. My, it really does vary. And I think that, um, yeah, because I'm at home more often, I normally would, for example, cook later on in the evening, whilst now I'm like, mm, maybe I'll do something fancy and have something on in the oven for like the whole day. Um, and so the times in which I use water, I think, has changed a lot. Previously, my my flat wouldn't have seen me in the house, let alone the the water taps see me. So, yeah, I'd say that the timing of which I've used the water, at least, has changed rather than the quantity, at least. Definitely. And how about you, Reda? Basically, lots of the habits have changed, like from having been been in the office. So let's say, well, in terms of uh, hygiene, since we're mentioning that, so toilet, we're using more toilets now in the house rather than having that office space as well. Also, like cooking habit, as they mentioned, and tea and coffee. So I, I do drink quite a bit of tea. And I used to drink that tea in in the office. Now all that tea has changed into being at home. And trying to stay awake during your Zoom calls. Yeah, long, long Zoom calls required quite a bit of tea. As everyone will remember, we had glorious weather during the beginning of lockdown. So how did that affect the infrastructure? So we usually plan our infrastructure based on our current understanding, so current population size, our current habits, and then what we think the future would look like. So there's a lot of crystal ball kind of thinking. So what we predict in terms of our population growth or possibly shrinkage and projected habits. And we do build in some resilience. And so we look at events like a one in 200 year drought. So what does that look like? And can our infrastructure kind of handle that? So overnight, we had 
COVID and we all had to stay at home. So generally our water habits changed. I was talking about having shower random times. Laura apparently has less showers now um, and Roy does drinking tea to stay awake in the Zoom calls. So our habits and the timing in which we use water changed. Pre-COVID, there was like a, there's a choreograph of like the, the energy companies and the water companies all working side by side to make sure that we get water when we need it on on time. And that changed. And then if you kind of link that to a hot and dry situation, we really did see a massive fall in our ability to meet the demand. So because of this, we saw a lot of pipe bursts. It does reduce the pressure in our network. And so people would have seen a reduction in the pressure. And in some cases, a pipe burst means absolutely no water for certain areas. And that's really disruptive in terms of our ability to use water at a given time. But also a burst usually means a road is out of use for a while. But I want to kind of ask you guys, actually, do you think there's an onus on us as a paying customer to look at our water habits and be like, you know what, we're in a bit of a dry spell. Do you think we should reduce our water uh, demand? Or do you think that's solely for engineers and scientists to go figure out? I think it should be a joint thing. The water authorities start doing surveys so the customer could tip in and say like, well, look, that's what we think. And the scientists and engineer could use this information to redirect it. It's not something I ever really thought about, I guess, I suppose, because we're quite a privileged nation where we normally have water there all the time. It's perfectly safe drinking water, even though a lot of people probably don't drink water that's come directly out of the tap. So I feel like there should be more of an emphasis on how privileged we are and therefore what more we should consider about how we use just resources in general. But I guess it's also it's not a question we've had to ask ourselves. I think that's a really good point, actually. We often kind of get annoyed that, oh, no, you know, why can't we water our garden? It's a scarce resource. And because we're paying for this, I think there's a there's an idea that we should be able to get the service as and when. And there is some responsibility on, on our scientists and engineers and, and the infrastructure community at large to kind of understand and predict what's going to change and what's going to happen and how to make sure that we're resilient. But um, I do think it's, it's a dance that everyone needs to dance to. There are positive stories in COVID too. There were some scientists who worked out a way to monitor COVID in our sewage system so that they could identify particular hotspots. And that information was then used to help prevent spread of COVID in some areas. So scientists do and engineers do kind of try and work to adapt. That's definitely expressing their adaptation, isn't it? Because the pandemic came overnight. Exactly. The good stories are often not brought out as much as they should. It was definitely hard work to mobilise people and understand how we could monitor COVID through a sewage system. It's not a pretty story to tell. But it does show that, you know, we can adapt. But at the same time, it's, it's a conversation with the paying customers. We can adapt, but also could you also kind of help us out kind of conversation? It's not an easy conversation to have because you are paying for it. It's like when you go and buy, like, I don't know, when the Rueda goes and buys her can of Coke. She doesn't expect anything except to just drink her Coke, right? She doesn't expect any kind of <laughs> other things to consider. So it's, it's a weird, weird, weird way of thinking about it, I guess. I feel like this ties in with our zero carbon outlook because it is resources that we're using and it's scarce resources, like you said. And 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 there's a lot of infrastructure that goes into planning all of this and, and no water should be wasted. It is something which is precious and we are really privileged to be able to have water on demand whenever we want, 24-7. I feel like it's everybody's responsibility to just be sensible about everything. If you don't need a light on to it off and if you don't need to have a half an hour shower then you know just make it a bit shorter like I don't know to me it seems like it's just something that everyone should be doing as a responsible human. 
out of curiosity about the gray water is it reused water or less filtered water gray water is often the water used in a building and it's instead of going straight into a treatment work it stays within the premise of the building and you can just use it then to like flush your toilet uh, not everything can go into gray water your shower water for example could be used as gray water but things from the sink often are not because people put things on the sink that you don't really want um, to kind of reuse it all. So that's what that's what grey water is. I think linking back to Amina, though, I think that brings us to um, how responsible and conscious we want to be as a human race. And I know we were talking about, you know, the water that literally comes from our taps. But if we if we kind of look further afield and understand the discussion kind of more globally, then our habits generally, so be it um, fashion or um, our food habits, they really, really significantly affect water resources around the world. And so we, you, I know you mentioned like um, our carbon footprint and that we, there's like a water footprint too. And if we want to ensure that we are conscious, responsible humans, then we have to understand how scarce our natural resources are. And our infrastructure can be resilient, but I guess it's a point of, do we want to make it over resilient that the privileged few, I guess, can have anything, whatever they want? Or is it a case that actually, you know, well, we need to go back to the drawing board and and, and talk about actually, you know, how sustainable is this and how fair is this? There are, there are many stories and reports of, you know, when avocado became a big thing. Parts of the world saw such a depletion in their water resources that locals couldn't actually get, um, have access to, to kind of just adequate water for their own water supply. So, you know, we could build infrastructure to make sure that, you know, everyone in London and Manchester and Dundee, et cetera, get everything whenever they want. But it's, it's a wider discussion, I guess, on that. So a holistic approach is very important. Do you think there are areas where the water industry could be improved? Because like one of the things you hear a lot is there are a lot of leaks in the system, which costs an awful lot of either money or resource. And But it would also be prohibitive to try and fix them as well. So we just kind of live with it. It's not an either or. It's a kind of a combination of both. There's an argument that says, you know what, it's not too bad if pipes leak because they'll kind of go back into our groundwater resource and eventually we'll, we can like pick it up later. But then it kind of questions, well, you know, a lot of energy went into cleaning that water. Is that really a good use of, use of energy? It's a really energy intensive process, treating water and wastewater. But historically, actually, treating water usually would happen at parts of the day where the where energy would be cheapest. But obviously, COVID meant that changed as well. So our, our energy habits changed. So they're all quite interlinked, all these different sectors. But there is a lot more that the, the water companies could do. Um, and I guess it's kind of encouraging that kind of uh, innovation and encouraging work in areas that we've historically found quite difficult, like identifying leakages. Can we not find out where our pipe is leaking? <laughs> Apparently it's not that easy. Do you guys go off where there's a leakage and then follow it back or, or is like non-destructive testing used? How is it generally figured out? So we have um, flow monitors at different parts of the network. And so you you know how much water is going in a particular part. And then if you know that you know no water has actually been taken out during that kind of stretch, but there's a reduction in the in the flow at one point, then you know that there's a leakage somewhere. But with that, where are within that system? That's a, that's another that's another that's another point. There are non-destructive ways of, of monitoring that. But I'll be very honest, we're not even always entirely sure where our pipe work is are. So actually going to the streets and trying to work out where these pipes exist isn't actually well documented. Um, so that in itself, like actually knowing what our, our assets are underground, not even just for water, just um, from, for a lot of assets in the ground, gas. Um, it, there's so many times on engineering projects, you'll hear of a strike, which means that, you know, we've kind of done some ground investigations. We have a rough idea where these pipes are. And then we go and start working and then we hit a pipe. 
and then it's like oh no. and then it's all it's it's very expensive you have to go back to the drawing board look at um like diversions and 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 the compensations that you'd have to give to all these different people that you've hit their pipes is that because some of the systems are quite old like for example i know manchester has water that comes also from filmer so the same lake i'll eventually get my water from the reservoir i should say um but that was sort of a victorian era and it, it falls all the way under gravity all the way to manchester through this big tunnel i think um and that's what 100 years old yeah exactly so our our infrastructure is quite old and we didn't actually kind of uh, map them out all the time sometimes we map them out but they were done on on just like paper and that then wasn't kind of transcribed into what we currently use what's also quite interesting is that the water industry for example uses one particular software to map where their pipe workers are but that's not necessarily the same software that another organization um, would use um, so everyone uses different ways of of um, mapping out where they think their infrastructure is but it's not necessarily um it's not necessarily easy to to kind of get more of a holistic understanding of what's underground. I would never have guessed that coming from the industry that I'm in, where everything is done so meticulously, I guess you guys are really up against it. So if we go back to the question of whether the infrastructure adapts to us or whether we adapt to the infrastructure, it sounds like it's a bit of a compromise between the two. We need to do both. A holistic approaches need to be taken. It's not a simple answer. You need to look at the bigger picture. So we hope that you enjoyed our discussion. Thank you very much. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.